Today, I want to look at a psalm that we're so familiar with, but we usually take one verse out of this psalm and kind of throw the rest of it away. In fact, it's what most of the houses of prayer are built on, Psalm 27, verse 4. We know that verse right away. One thing I've desired, that will I seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire His temple. We sang about it this morning. We sang about it tonight. And yet, the entire psalm is a very unique psalm. It's the psalm about crisis, family crisis, national crisis, and God's intervention when you get yourself in the mess. How many of you know when someone's just attacking you and you've done nothing wrong, you have this sure confidence that God's going to intervene. Why? Because you're innocent. But most of life isn't you're innocent and the other person's wrong. Most of life is Satan rages and you've done some stupid things. And they both converge to the point where you need deliverance. And can you rely on a father... In heaven who bails out his children. When you got yourself in the mess. <laughs> and we find in this psalm supernatural faith. To believe that God can deliver. When we get our own selves in the mess. And our own. Sin is actually hurting others as well. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about maintaining supernatural faith in the midst of crisis. Now, maybe you're not in a crisis. Maybe this isn't apropos to you. Maybe this isn't the message of the hour for you. But I've got good news for you. If you're not in a crisis, you can be. And not only you can be, but you most likely will be soon. And if the nation isn't, nation in the earth doesn't go into crisis, there's, most of us will face two to three earth-shaking, bone-rattling crises that will call, uh, that will call for us, or I'll say it this way, it will challenge our faith to the deepest level. And how do you maintain faith when crisis mounts on many fronts and it's partly our fault? You know, I I could go into it. I won't go into a lot, but I think everyone can sense that our nation could be headed into perilous times. I mean, that's why there's so much energy on this election. Because we know decisions right now are key. They're important. We're We're at a crossroads. We're at a a tipping point where we're at a, a climax of that something could go bad if, if we don't make the right decision. And so everyone's on edge. You know, we have so much uh, potential for fear right now in our nation. Blood guilt from abortion is mounting up. Traditional marriage has been abandoned. Immorality has overtaken the culture where Talking about pornography is just part of the entertainment industry. 
racial tension, murder, violence, political and corporate corruption, neglect of the poor, Russian aggression, Chinese expansion, pandemics, terrorists. I can't even pronounce the new virus. What's the new virus? Zika? Zika? See? The, the point is, is there's a new one every day. You can't pronounce them. Bird flu, pig swine something. You know, it's like, it's, it's uh, Ebola. Just not to mention flu might kill you. They say, get a shot. I mean, it's just, just there's so many things that, that are mounting that could cause crisis, not only in our nation, but in the entire world. But, but it's more than that because in the church here in America, we're facing personal crisis. Our own sin is being exposed. If this election has done anything, it's exposing our own sin. That we're a valueless, easily persuaded, cheap date for any political persuasion. We're we're just drifting. Our moral compass is afloat. and, And as long as we can stay strong and keep our stuff, there's no telling whom we might vote for. We're being tested on every side. Ferguson with racial tensions testing us. The, our, the plight of immigrant workers is testing us. Our compassion is being examined by God. He's looking down on us for how fiscally sound we are. And do we care about the poor? He's measuring our commitment to morality and, and uh, in, on the issue of of. of Perversion and all sorts of manners that evil that are pervasive. We're in a personal crisis. Compromise, apathy. You know, it's 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 really um, quite astounding that common sins seem so insurmountable right now. Like common sins, like resisting. Certain scenarios and certain temptations. And you, you deal with a whole group of young people that brought up in the church and, and they're just losing their way. You know, and, and, and what you and I would have taken for granted that the grace of God is here to empower and to change and transform. That there's, they seem to be going, help! And you're going, well, access the grace of God. What do you mean access the grace of God? The simple things of the kingdom seem to be going by the wayside. Assaults from secular humanism. Humanism. My point is, is the nation's not just in crisis. The church is in crisis and we've been part of the problem. It's been our sin that's got us into the mess. The word of God's a suggestion. It's no longer a guide for all of life and doctrine. We've got ourselves in the mess. And so in Psalm 27, we actually find David's greatest life crisis. The psalm about beholding the Lord is the psalm of David's greatest life crisis. In fact, it contains... Some of the most detailed descriptions of this event that's David going, David's going through. So open it up, Psalm 27. 
If you have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPods or your smartphone, just go ahead and open them. Oh, if you've got that thing too, you can put, put it up there for those who don't, the overhead. Let's read this together. So, Lord, we ask you to open up your word. Teach us. You're the teacher. We are your students. We want to learn from you. Tonight, open your word to us. Give us comprehension of the scriptures that our hearts might be stabilized and that fear might be overcome in Jesus' name. And the reason why I prayed that is because in the midst of the crisis, God doesn't want us to be afraid. He doesn't want us fearful. In fact, it could be our greatest opportunity for witness to his son. That when the dark is the darkest, he gives the opportunity for the people of light to shine the brightest. This could be our hour. You know, I heard, I heard of uh, Bill Clinton interviewed one time. And man, he, he was so winsome in his interview. And, and the, the interviewer asked him, said, what was your greatest disappointment? And his answer shocked me. He said, there was no crisis during my presidency. It completely ruined my presidency. There was absolutely no crisis. Therefore, I could do nothing great. And he was mad because George Bush Jr. had the opportunity to walk the nation through 9-11. He didn't have that opportunity. His eight years was just calm. No national crisis. And his point was, in order to do something great in history, there has to be a crisis out of which a people or a person arises in all of their weakness to do great things. Winston Churchill (laughs) had been cast out as a political figure. Crisis comes with World War II. And suddenly, Winston Churchill is the guy. Crisis brings the best out of him. And when it's over, he goes back off (laughs) the world scene. Well, in Psalm 27, David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. 
When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me, nor forsake me. O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What a great song. Isn't that one of your favorites? It should be. It's so good. Well, in this psalm, David gives us wonderful descriptions of the present scenario he's in. The first one, he's in a national crisis. There's a period of war. And violence that's breathing down David's neck. The first thing we see in verse 2 is that wicked men are trying to kill David. Now it says they're trying to eat up my flesh. David says they're trying to eat up my flesh. The actual words in Hebrew there are like a wild beast that's tearing, that's overcome his prey and it's ripping his flesh apart. Devouring its prey when it kills it. So he has wicked men... Who want to kill him. Now beloved they aren't wicked men. Who want to neutralize him. And his influence in the nation. They're not just trying to defame him. Or slander him. They want to kill him. How many of you know that's disturbing. When you're the leader of the nation. It's disturbing anytime. If someone would kill you. You'd be disturbed. Or you should be. Verse 3, not only are wicked men trying to kill him, for that's happened many times in David's life. But it's much worse than that. These wicked men aren't poor. These wicked men are wealthy. These wicked men have armies. They are men of influence and power. But if wicked men are poor and have no influence, you don't have to be as disturbed. But these wicked men have armies. They have resource. In other words, they can follow through on what they want to do today. So he says, though an army may encamp against me, though war may rise against me. So now we have not only are wicked men trying to kill David, we have national crisis with war. Armies fighting. War rising. But it goes on. We find out in verse 4 that David is separated from his tabernacle. Now, David's tabernacle was in the backyard of his palace. So David's cut off from the house of the Lord, which means he's been thrown, he's been kicked, pressured out of his palace. He's cut off. So not only are wicked men trying to kill him, not only has an army encamped around him, he's been driven out of Jerusalem. 
Well, it gets worse. In verse 12, false witnesses have risen against David. Now what this means is, is that his counselors have now turned against him. His counselors, the ones who gave him sweet counsel, who gave him strategy, have now turned to the other side of the enemy who wants him dead and they're working against him. These are the same guys that David has leaned upon in order for him to get his breakthroughs. His success. And now they've abandoned him. When you're a leader and all your top aides and cabinet members begin to abandon you, that's your demise. False accusations, false witnesses, things that are not rooted in the truth. And so you have here a coup d'etat. There's a plot to overthrow David, not from the outside, it's from within. Love it. What hurts worse than opposition from the outside? It's opposition from within your family, from in your friendships. It's betrayal. David's being betrayed on a national level. But it's worse than that. If it was just a national level, that, that would be enough. That sounds bad already. How many of you would go, I don't want that crisis right there, period. But it's worse for David. He's got himself into the mess. A personal crisis happens in verse 9. 7 and 9, he's crying out for mercy. And in desperation, he's crying out for deliverance. And he's asking for the Lord not to be angry with him and not to forsake him. Why? Because it's his sin that's got him into the mess. So now the scenario is unfolding. National crisis. Men are trying to seek to kill him. They have armies that are camping around him. He's been driven out of his palace. His own counselors are forming a coup d'etat to overthrow him. And David's sin has brought this all on. Well, it gets worse. We find out that the betrayal is coming from within his family. Though my mother and father forsake me. His own family is betraying him. David doesn't identify who it is. He just says generally it's my mother and father letting us know that the family's not quite working right. And then it's not only his counselors are betraying him on a national level. We find out in the scriptures that his counselors were his dearest friends. In fact, the betrayal that David will receive with his counselors is later going to be used with relationship to Judas's betrayal of Jesus. You want to know what David said in Psalm 55 of this betrayal? For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who exalts himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it, it, it was you. A man, my equal, my companion, my friend. 
We took sweet counsel together. And we walked to the house of God in throne. In other words, deep friendship. Even to the point of spiritual worship together. They were in this together. It goes on in Psalm 41 verse 9. He says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David's in national crisis. He's in personal crisis. And we read, now that you understand that scenario, most of you may have already understood that, but now that you understand the scenario, now we can appreciate the faith that David has in the first six verses. I mean, it's unusual. The normal person should be asking the question, what? How can you say that? Where did this faith come from? This is not natural faith. This is supernatural faith. How do you get to verses 1 to 6 when that scenario has been described, David? How can you make such, such uh, declarations of the Lord? I mean, he makes five unusual supernatural declarations with such faith. Number one, God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He's my guidance. He's my deliverer. Whom shall I be afraid? I mean, it feels a little over the top for the scenario. But David has somehow got to a place where he's above the storm. Even when he got himself in the mess, somehow he's above it all and he declares... God is my life. God is my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. He's my strength. Of whom shall I be afraid? Somehow he's up 35,000 feet. How many of you know when you just take off and you're just above the ground, things look big. You get up 35,000 feet and suddenly cities look small. Suddenly the God who sits in the heavens and laughs looks really big. And David gets up to the high mountain. He gets above the fray. He sees his God. And now the fear somehow is not even dissipated. It's gone. Love, that's a supernatural place. And when those moments you find it, learn how you got there. Take notes. Because they feel like fleeting moments. You wake up in the morning. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And by lunchtime, oh God. It's dark. And I'm lost. And you don't know where I'm at. Only to hopefully recover it by the time you go to bed. Or else you won't sleep. He declares God is my light and my salvation. Then he declares the Lord's the stronghold of my life. He's the strength of my life that helps me overcome wicked, out of control men and armies who come against me. 
first declaration, He's my light and salvation. The second declaration is, He's my strength. Evil can throw the best it has at me. Wicked men and wicked armies. But they will stumble. They will fall. What a statement. They are trying to devour my flesh. They will stumble. They will fall. And even if the whole army surrounds me on every side, so what? This I'm confident. He's my stronghold. He's my tower. I run in and I am safe. He goes on to say, God is my peace and safety. And he draws me in the secret place. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Then he says he will lift him up above his enemies. God takes him in. And God lifts him up. Isn't that a good twofold picture? He doesn't just draw you near. He draws you near. Then he picks you up. David goes on and says, and even if my mother and father forsake me, guess what? The Lord will parent me. The Lord will care for me. He will shepherd me. He will make me lie down in green pastures. He will lead me beside the still waters. He will restore my soul for his own name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. And then the last one, he says, and by the way, this isn't me, this isn't God just trying to form my character. He's actually going to break in in this life. (laughs) He's not just trying to teach me endurance. I would have lost heart if it was just about endurance because I would have died. You know, there's some trials where you don't make it on the other side. (laughs) He's going, this isn't one of those trials you could kind of go through like slander and still if it never gets resolved, you get your character tested and you make it. In this scenario, if he doesn't actually get delivered in this life, he's dead and so are people all around him. But he makes this statement. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What a statement of faith. What a response in the midst of the crisis. Now, you ought to be asking this question now. How in the world did he get that? He's not even born again. He's not, doesn't even have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And look at him. I'm like, David, come on. If you can go there, we can go there. What's the key, David? What's the secret to your confidence? How can you dare to have such faith when it's your own sin that's gotten you into the problem, David? That's the one I want to know. Oh, man, I want to know the answer to that question. I love this complex scenario because we're usually so black and white. Either it's all their fault or it's all our fault. And David gives us the complexity of it's their fault and it's my fault. It's probably mostly my fault, but it's their fault. 
It's the rage of Satan and it's my own sin converging to him, me in on every side. And I look at that scenario and I go, David, how can you dare to have such confidence in the face of a national crisis that you got the nation into because of your sin? The church ought to be asking the same question. What can we expect from God when the nation is in crisis and we're part of the problem, if not a big part of the problem? What's your secret, David? Look with me. Are are you okay? Are you with me? All right. I'm going to pray for you real quick because this is the key part. So, Lord, help us right now to take hold of the truth of your word. Instruct us. Awaken us. Break the power of the evil one right now in the name of Jesus. Shut his lying mouth and begin to whisper your word to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, God, that we might overcome fear And we might have peace in the day when everything else shakes. So release it, God. In Jesus' name. Now, we focus on verse 4. Well, you want to know where the key started for David? Verses 7 to 9. Verses 1 to 6, David is like the man. You're like, you go, David. You're the man. Such faith. But in verse 7, all of a sudden the mood shifts and David chooses to let us in on a prior conversation before the declarations of faith ever came. David lets us in. Now, this is what I love about David. He actually lets us into the dirt. He lets us into the crux of the matter of his own sin. He brings us in. He doesn't just give us the faith from the front. The declarations. Hey, when trial comes, declare these five things. No, that's a sham. That's just hyperbole. That's not in real life. David lets us in on the emotions. He's like the the walking heart of the human race. He lets us in on the nitty gritty where the emotions are real and the trials real and the struggle and the overcoming. And David lets us in on the vulnerable moment and lets us know it's his sin that got him into this. He says, have mercy upon me. Now he's lowly. This isn't the shouting Faith-filled singing, David. This is the one who, in this circumstance, is broken. He's crushed. As he says in Psalm 42, his breakers and waves have crashed over me. I know we like to sing that. When deep calls unto deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers have crashed over me. We've kind of made it into this cool little intimacy saying that's not what it means. When deep calls out to deep means... When the, your waves have crashed over me. Have you ever been crashed over by waves? Yeah. Have you ever actually done it where the waves actually drive you into the 
beach and slam you on the ground. You don't know if you're going to make it. And they just keep coming one after another. It's the picture of a man who can't get up and get a breath of air. And just when he gets a breath of air, slam back down. Slam, slam. It's, in other words, it's, oh God, you're beating the mess out of me. Ah, ah. You're broken. You have nothing left but a deep cry because you're so broken. You're so crushed. And David lets us in on this vulnerable place where he's just a frail man. Now, this is good news for, for me. I hope it's good news for you. But when I see David as just a frail man, when he lets us know he's the frail man right here, now I know I can take the same on-ramp to faith that he did. You hear what I'm saying? When David tells us he's this low, now I know I can get up as high as he went. Because why? I'm that low. That's where I'm at. Now, David's sin when he says, God, do not forsake me. Do not put thy servant away in your anger. And it says, leave me not. Do not forsake me. This is referring to the level of sin he's in. Now, I I just want to let you know what scenario you're most likely dealing with here. David's sin has got him into the trouble. Do you remember David's sin? David with Bathsheba. David looks over the wall, has a few voyeuristic encounters. He sees Bathsheba. He decides he wants her. He has her. And then he kills Uriah. You remember? He kills Uriah. He tries to cover it up. It's first degree murder. It's not a crime of passion. It's first degree. He plans it. Then the prophet comes in to David. David, I have something to report to you. You see, there was this poor farmer. And he had a little ewe lamb, which is a little girl lamb. He had this little ewe lamb. And this lamb was so special to him. He was poor, but that's all he had. And this little ewe lamb would eat at his table, would sleep in his bed, would He raised that little ewe lamb with his little children and they played with him. And one day this rich man who had many a lamb, many of cattle, had a visitor. And so the rich man told his servants to go and take the ewe lamb and and kill the ewe lamb that the poor man had and fed it to his visitor. Because the meat would be especially soft of this little ewe lamb. David rises up in anger. Who's this man? He is worthy of death. He deserves to die. And you know the famous saying. Nathan turns on a dime. You're the man. You're the man, David. You took Bathsheba, Uriah's little you lamb. The Lord said to you that he would not only give you the kingdom, but much more if you would have asked it. And you took his you lamb. And now here's what's going to happen to you, David. For the rest of your life, the sword will be in your house. This child shall die that Bathsheba is pregnant with. Not only will that child die. Guess what, David? You stole 
you stole Uriah's legacy. Uriah will never have a child to carry on his legacy. You stole it, David. You stole his inheritance. There will never be a child from his wife to carry on his name. You not only took his wife, you snuffed out his name. And now the sword's going to be loosed among your legacy. Legacy for legacy. You snuffed out his legacy and the sword's going to snuff out yours. And one day someone from your own house will sleep with your concubines in public. You did this dirty deed in private, but God's going to expose you in public. And one of your children will sleep with your concubines. Do you know what that means? It means someone, one of his sons, is going to overthrow him. That's what happens when a king is overthrown. They then sleep with all of their wives and concubines in public to show they're the new king. Which means not only is a son going to rebel against him, but a son's going to overthrow his rule, take his rule, and sleep with his concubines. You know what's horrifying about this? Is that sword that was released in David's house, do you know what it led to? It led to one son raping one of his daughters. Another son then killing that son. That son rebelling against him. That son dying. Another son, Adonijah, rebelling against David's commands in the word of the Lord. And he ends up dead. How bad can it be? Now here's the thing. Absalom has just overthrown David. And David writes this psalm as he walking out of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives and into the Judean wilderness. And as he walks out into the Judean wilderness, he realizes, I've done this. And do you know what? The prophet did not promise to bail him out. There was no guarantee he would ever sit on the throne again. That wasn't the promise to David. The promise to David is he'd have someone from his house who would always sit on the throne. It didn't have to be David. And there was no guarantee he would ever see Jerusalem again. And how do we know that? Because as he's walking out, there's this Benjamite, uh, uh, a relative of Saul named Shimei. And he's throwing rocks at David and cursing him. You're getting what you deserve, you bloodthirsty king. Throwing rocks. And one of the sons of Zariah, Abishai, goes... Let me cut his head off. Who does he think he is, that dog? To curse the king. And you know what David says? I deserve it. Leave him alone, you sons of Zariah. What, what will I do with you guys? The Lord has brought him here to curse me. Perhaps because of his cursing, God will look upon me and be kind to me. You ever been in that deep place? Shimmy's cursing you. You've lost everything. You've destroyed your own family. You've destroyed the kingdom. And now your sin has brought you to this place. And guess what? If God doesn't deliver you, if God forsakes you like he forsook Saul because of Saul's sin, he realizes the old story of the last king. 
Not only does David die, Solomon, whom it was prophesied he would build the temple, he'll die. Absalom knows the prophecy. He'll die, and so will the hope of building the temple of the Lord die. A lot of people are going to die because of David's sin. And he's walking, and as he walks, God speaks. Beloved, have you ever just been crushed enough to where you actually hear God speak? Whoever, if you've ever been in that place where you've been so broken, so distraught, you, you, you begin to hear God in a way you've never heard Him before. Because finally you're just humbled enough to where there are no more solutions and only He can intervene. And in that place you hear God. And how many of you, after He's bailed you out, you kind of miss that place? You ever been there where you go, you know what, I I don't want to go there again, but I met God in a way. David's walking. His own sin has got him in the mess. More death could come. And as he's walking, he bows in this humble place and he says, have mercy on me, God. Do not forsake me. Take your anger away from me. And in that place of despair, of brokenness, the Father speaks one thing. Seek my face, David. You go, wait a minute. He's got to have more to say than that. David knew exactly what that meant. Seek my face, David. Seek my face, David. Seek my face. You know, you know David knows, knows what that means. It means the story hasn't been written yet. There's a glimmer of hope on the horizon. <laughs> he hears one sentence from God. One sentence. Seek my face, David. But I don't deserve it. You know, David knows what this means. Immediately his heart goes, your face will I see. Immediately, see, David knows what this means. He's been here before, beloved. He's been here before. This isn't the first time he's got himself in a mess. He just thought this mess was insurmountable. This mess should do him in. He's been in other messes, but as soon as God whispered, see my face, suddenly my heart said, There's a chance. Your face will I seek. Do you remember? You remember David was in an earlier season? Do you remember when Saul was going to kill him? He was on the run. He goes to to, uh, uh, the town of Nob where the priests are. He's on the run, but he has no sword. He has no food for his men. And he goes in there and he asks... And he goes, hey, do you got any bread? Only the showbread. Hey, I need it. I need the showbread. And he goes, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Why are you here? And David goes, Saul sent me lie. Which is now, the priest goes, okay, you're on official business. Gives him the bread. And then David says, oh, I need a sword. Do you have Goliath's sword? And he takes Goliath's sword. Do you know what? You know the problem with that? He lied. 
Saul didn't send him. And now it's going to look like the priests are in cahoots with David to overthrow Saul. Have you ever told it? Do you know what happens? The word gets back to Saul. Doeg the Edomite was there, overheard it, goes back and tells Saul. Saul gives the command for his army then to kill the priests. They won't do it. So Doeg the Edomite, in his ambition, goes and kills all the priests. And only one gets away, the high priest's son. Have you ever told a lie that got a whole town of priests killed? Have you? You feeling better about yourself? (laughs) You ever told a lie? David then takes the bread. He takes the sword. He runs to a Philistine king. And and he's seeking refuge. And then as he goes there, suddenly the bright idea doesn't seem so bright anymore. As the king looks down and goes, Hey, is that Goliath's sword you're wearing? How dare you come into my kingdom? With my hero's sword that you killed and cut off his head. David realizes, bad idea. I should have left the sword outside the gate. Now he begins to lie again. He fakes like he's insane. Start slobbering. The king goes, is this how Israel's God treats all his heroes? We'll let him live because he'll be a sign that Israel's God is a cruel God and horrible God. So David lives and he gets out of the, you know, out of the city gates and goes, praise God. Well, you just lied again, David. He goes to southern Judea to the Judean wilderness. He has some near misses, but God delivers him every time. The prophet Gad comes and says, David, do not fear. Stay in the Judean wilderness. God will protect you. What is the very next sentence? The very next verse? And David became afraid and left the Judean wilderness with all of his men. He goes to Ziklag. He puts all his men and women in Ziklag. And now he's a hired gun for the Philistine army. There's one problem though. His sin finds him out. And now the Philistine army is going to fight Israel's army. And they ask David and his men to fight. Now David's fighting against the Lord's anointed and his army. They go... The, the other guys go, he won't fight. He'll betray us. You know what David says? No, I'll, I'll help you. While under his breath, he's going, God, bail me out. The other four kings, there's five Philistine kings, agree, we don't want David fighting with us. He'll turn on us in the heat of the battle. And they're probably right. He goes back to Ziklag. When he gets to Ziklag, guess what happens? An Amalekite raiding band attacked the city. And they've stole, they've enslaved his wives, all the wives, all the children, and all their goods. Let me ask you a question. Have you told a lie that got all the priests killed? Have you disobeyed the direct order of the prophet of the Lord? And it's now led, and your disobedience has led to all of your men having their wives enslaved, their children enslaved, and all of your worldly goods confiscated. Have you ever done that? And now David stands there and it says his men began to consider stoning him dead. You're the one that got us in this mess, David. It's your sin. You're the bad leader. You know what the Bible says? David strengthened himself in the Lord and he sought his God. You know what he prayed? 
Lord, you know my tears, they're in your bottle. I wanted to do right, but in my weakness, I didn't. I've gotten myself in this mess. It's my sin and the sins of others. Oh God, deliver me, deliver me. And you know what the Bible says? Within 24 hours, Psalm 18 is written. The God of David rose up and rode his clouds like chariots and confronted all his enemies. And within 24 hours, he's got all his wives, all his children, all his goods. Saul and Jonathan are dead and he's king at Hebron. And do you know what David declares in Psalm 18? He delivered me because he delights in me. What? Really, David? Really? Psalm 18, verse 35. And guess what? His gentleness will make me great. What will make me a great king is not my charisma, not my strength. Not my overwhelming ability to outdo everybody else. Here's what's going to make me great. He's going to be very gentle with me. David hears God speak. Seek my face. And David goes, I've been here before. Your face I will see. And he comes out of that place of seeking and releases verses 1 to 6. Beloved, there's a lesson for us. David says, in this I'm confident. I didn't want to be king anyway. I just wanted him. I just wanted him. King's hard work. It's difficult. It brings out the worst in you. It's very, it's very hard. But God knows my heart. I want him above all things. And when he seeks his face, now his confidence comes. And now he knows the Lord is my light. He's my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I fear? When wicked men came against me to try to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And though an army encamped against me, in this I will be confident. For one thing I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire His temple. He said, seek my face and His face I'll seek. Therefore, he will bring me into his pavilion. He will bring me into his secret place. He will set me high above my enemies. And I will sing. Yes, I will sing. And suddenly the desert becomes a stream. Suddenly the Judean wilderness becomes a place he knew one other time before. When God bailed him out. And now David begins to walk in supernatural faith. Because he's righteous? No. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He is the God who forgives. Therefore the nation shall fear you. Suddenly it turns around. Oh, beloved, the church needs a revelation. We think it's a political leader that's our, our guy in the midst of crisis. We're desperate. I've got to get the right guy. 
I gotta get the right. I gotta, oh, oh, we gotta mobilize. We, oh, I gotta figure this out. No, it's your sin that's got you in this mess. There's no promise that we make it, guys. There's no word that floated down from heaven. The U.S. is going to make it as the superpower until Jesus returns. But you know, there is a sentence that's floating down right now in the midst of the crisis. Like that feather and Forrest Gump. It's just floating down. And it's a whisper. If, if you've been crushed enough, you'll hear it. If you haven't, you won't. You'll still try your own thing. You'll keep trying your own thing till another son dies, another daughter's raped, another death, another casualty. How many casualties do we have to have in the church? How many sons have we lost? How many daughters have just walked away from the faith? How many swords have been loosed in our homes? How many terror attacks? What, what, what's build up a wall just to have what come at us? Ignore the plight of the broken just to have Ferguson erupt three more times. Are we listening? Have we been crushed enough to hear the word of God in the hour? Do you remember what Jesus said? In the last days there will be signs, wars, rumors of wars, nations against nation, calamities, plagues, famines. The love of many will grow cold. Family will betray family. And then he gives this. Therefore, watch and pray. And all hell's breaking loose. Remember this one thing. Seek my face. Well, that's not practical, Jesus. Where's the better pastoral advice? Jesus goes, I'm going to give you the best pastoral advice. Because in times like these, when you've got, it's your own sin and it's the rage of Satan all combined in a complexity to where you can't figure it out. There's only one recourse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Seek my face. And he's waiting for people to do this in the midst of our fault. Not making any more excuses. Not blaming it on the other politician. Obama did not cause our compromise. Obama did not cause us to walk away from sound doctrine. And allow our children to be assaulted by devils. To let our families to be broken. I tell you. Obama didn't cause us to live in unforgiveness and bitterness, slander and gossip. He didn't cause it. We got ourselves in this mess, people. The day when we quit the blame shifting and we just do this, crush his waves have broken me.
And when we find ourselves in the dust, that's when the deliverance comes. Seek my face. Seek my face. Seek my face, America. Seek my face, church. Seek my face. And if you do, and if you do, I will draw you into my pavilion. I will lift you high above your enemies and you will sing again, church. (laughs) Oh, man. And then David ends it with this. Here's where we end tonight. David goes, it's not a pipe dream. It's not just a character lesson. If you actually do it, he will break in. Beloved, I believe in these times of crisis because the American church has nowhere else to go. We've been hemmed in on every side. We've been hemmed in with no good options. But what's the best of all the bad options? Bad. <laughs> bad. Bad options are bad options. Give me the best of all the bad options. It's bad options. And when we realize it, and we realize my hope for America is not in a leader. Am I going to vote? Yes. Am I going to be informed? Yes. Am I going to do the the process of democracy? Yes. It's a great privilege. I'm going to live in it. I'm going to vote. You do the same. But whoever... The bad option is guess what? He or she's not my hope. Because here's why. The crisis will still be there after the inauguration. The crisis will be there, but here's the glory. If I seek His face. If we seek His face. If you've studied the history of revival, that's when God's glory comes. He chooses weak people, crush people. Do you know what the Bible says in Isaiah 55? I gave David as a covenant to the peoples. As the sure mercies of David, I gave him as a witness to the peoples. Do you know what that means? I made David's life a prophetic memorial that this is how I deal with all men. If they do what he did. If they lean into my mercy. Beloved, I'm actually more excited right now than ever before. Whether there's a broken and messed up convention or not, I don't care. You know why? Because I'm beginning to seek his face. And I can feel the waves of revival coming. <laughs> I can feel it. I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. I'm seeking his face a little bit. I want to tell you, I'm getting to that place where I'm, where I'm feeling it a little bit. Going, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though, a, though an army encamp about me, this I'll be confident. I've chosen the one thing. 
Therefore, he will draw me into his pavilion. He will hide me under the shadow of his wings. He will lift me up high above my enemies. And I will sing. Oh, you know you're free when you get up above that storm. How many of you go, I got to get up above that storm. I got to know the father who bails me out when I put myself in the mess. Now, some of you in this room tonight, because you're humans, need to be bailed out by your heavenly father. You need power from on high to break into your life against sickness, against mistakes. You need restoration in your relationships. You need a breakthrough in your churches, your cities, your states, your nation. We need God to bail us out. And if you're here tonight, you go, I want the Lord to bail me out. I want to out of that place of crushing, go, your face I will see. You're saying tonight, I want to set my heart to seek his face. I want you to stand up. If you're in that place, you go, I've got to seek his face. Some of you are too young to be in that spot. There's good news for you. You shall grow older. And you shall have an opportunity. You too shall see. We could have Amy come up. feel like the Lord, when you were singing that, I think it's that Brandon Hampton song. I felt like the Lord said, I'm giving hope tonight. I made you for me. I made you for me. I made you for me. Seek my face. I felt like the Lord is coming to his people in this season to give us that chiropractic adjustment he's just helping us and in the midst of the crisis the midst of the darkness his light's going to shine brighter our hope is in you Jesus we're here and many of us like myself we've got ourselves into the mess We want to hear your voice tonight. Seek my face. You know, Moses, in Israel's worst point of their history, he went up with 70 up on the mountain of the Lord, and that says they ate with God on a sapphire pavement. They went up, and God set before them a meal, and they ate with God, and the 70 elders went back down, and Moses went deeper into that cloud of glory and darkness and fire. And within 40 days, those same 70 elders that ate with God built a golden calf, worshipped it. And judgment broke out upon the Israelites, killed tens of thousands. And in that place of utter rebellion, dejection, judgment, Moses dares to do something that all of us are grateful for. He goes... Show me your glory. (laughs) Show me your glory. What? You're going to ask him that? 
when you're in a national crisis, national rebellion, national judgment. And Moses goes, I know, I know you like me. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know you like me. Show me your glory and God shows him. Some of you need to get a revelation in your weakest moment. When you deserve abandonment, forsakenness, God loves to come. God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Let's just wait on him as we sing.